Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled The Beginning of Wisdom. It's based upon the lectionary readings for August 19, 2018. Once upon a time, there lived a young prince. When his father died, he assumed his divinely appointed throne, married a beautiful princess from a neighboring kingdom, and settled down to govern his people. Soon afterwards, God appeared to him in a dream and promised to grant the young royal whatever his heart desired. Being a humble man, the new king refused to ask for wealth, power, or long life, and instead replied, I am only a child. Therefore give your servant an understanding mind to govern your people and to discern between good and evil. God was so pleased with the king's request, he promised not only to grant it, to make the king the wisest human being in history, but to grant him every other measure of greatness as well untold wealth, matchless honor, and long life. In time, the king's reputation for brilliance spread across the land. Nobles traveled from distant shores to hear his pithy sayings and witness his wise judgments. In accordance with his wisdom and God's blessing, the king's wealth and power grew beyond measure. He made strategic political and economic alliances, maintained fleets of ships, built gorgeous palaces and palaces and temples, traded in luxuries such as gold, silver, and ivory, penned the greatest wisdom literature of his time, presided over the golden age of his kingdom, and finally handed his throne to his son after a peaceable reign of forty years. This is the version of King Solomon's story I learned growing up. It was a stuff of fable and fairy tale all mashed up, but it wasn't the whole truth scripture gives us. Here are some juicy tidbits it left out. Once upon a time, there lived a young prince. When his father died, he ordered the murder of his older brother, the rightful heir to the throne, and took over the kingdom by stealth and bloodshed. After spending the early days of his reign carrying out the vengeance killings his father had requested, he set out to build the kingdom of his dreams, a kingdom of wealth, prestige, and power. The king's appetites were beyond excessive. To support his extravagant lifestyle, he levied taxes his subjects couldn't bear. To police knowledge, he gathered the surrounding world's wisdom traditions to himself. To complete his lavish building projects, he drafted thousands of people into forced labor. To satisfy his lusts, he assembled a harem of 700 wives and 300 concubines. To quell his spiritual restlessness, he constructed pagan shrines and offered worship to gods who demanded child sacrifice. The results of his choices were dire. By the end of his reign, his people could, could no longer bear the crushing burdens of taxation and slavery he had placed upon them. In the wake of his paganism, they could no longer differentiate between idolatry and worship. Because he had monopolized God to justify his personal brand of wisdom, his subjects had nowhere to turn when they sought divine discernment or reparation. The king soon found himself confronted by enemies. After his untimely death, his son tried to force the disgruntled masses back into servitude, but when they resisted, a civil war that would last for decades broke out across the land. The kingdom split in two, and the famed king's once golden dreams dissolved into chaos. One king, two stories. Which story tells the truth about Solomon, about wisdom, about us? I grew up in a church that espoused strict biblical literalism and inerrancy. Though I no longer read scripture through those lenses, I respect the particular challenge King Solomon poses for those who do. I have precise memories of of sitting in church as a child, watching preachers twist themselves into interpretive pretzels to make sure the famed king emerged from their sermons with his reputation intact as the wisest man who ever lived. In those sermons, I didn't hear about the slaves who toiled in the king's copper mines and stone yards, or about the excesses of Solomon's daily menu, 
a thousand measures of flour and meal, ten oxen, twenty cattle, one hundred sheep, and ample sides of deer, gazelle, roebuck, and fatted fowl. Or about the forbidden gods, Shemosh, Moloch, Astarte, Milcom, he honored with dubious and possibly sinister sacrifices at shrines on the outskirts of the city. I did, however, hear preachers make the time-honored Let's Play Eve move <clears throat> to clean up Solomon's story. This move allowed Solomon to remain a wise and good king, a witty and enterprising man whose only fatal mistake was that he fell into the arms of the wrong women, foreign, idolatrous women who led his otherwise pure heart astray. Needless to say, this misogynistic reading depended on a pretty narrow definition of sin, sin a sexual mishap, not sin as greed, ostentation, fratricide, gluttony, idolatry, exploitation, or cruel indifference. I started this essay dividing Solomon's story into two opposing versions, the good and the bad, the noble and the shameful. But the wonderful thing about the Bible, if we're willing to liberate it from the bondage of literalism, is it refuses to distort reality in such an unhelpful way. The Solomon of the Bible is a human being, which is to say he is, like us, a paradox. Blessed with wisdom and cursed with foolishness, devoted to God and attracted to idols, committed to his intellect and shackled to his appetites. In other words, we can neither whitewash nor dismiss this king. His story is too familiar, too much like our own. But we can learn from it. If we refuse to condone or condemn Solomon by revision, if we're willing to look at his life in its full complexity, he has much to teach us. Here are a few lessons I've carried away from his layered story. 1. To hunger for wisdom is the beginning of wisdom. Despite Solomon's many mistakes, he got this much right. He asked God for understanding, discernment, and sound judgment. In asking for these things, he was, at least for a time, aware that he was not God. He recognized that he was small, weak, imperfect, and prone to error. Knowing where he stood in the hierarchy of things, he cultivated what the psalmist calls the fear of the Lord. Not fear as in terror, but fear as in awe and radical amazement at who God is in relation to humanity. The beginning of wisdom is hunger, yearning, longing. The beginning of wisdom is the humble willingness to ask for what we need. 2. It is possible to lose God's dream in ours. Solomon may very well have received a vision from God. In the end, it doesn't matter. What matters is that Solomon's own dreams very quickly left God's in the dust. Walter Brueggemann puts it this way, The wisdom that Solomon does not learn is attentiveness to those for whom God has special attentiveness. There are all kinds of dreams, of power and money and prestige and control, but the dream of justice for widows, orphans, and immigrants is the deep wisdom of Torah obedience. And that's the dream, God's dream for the least and most vulnerable of his children, that Solomon never fulfills. 3. It's possible to hog God. A mandate is a tricky thing. Solomon believed that his wisdom and his legitimacy as Israel's ruler came from God himself. But how often in the years that followed did he return to that original mandate and ask himself if his reign was still worthy of God's stamp of approval? Using God to legitimize one's own decisions and satisfy one's own lusts is dangerous, especially if it denies other people the right to appeal to God, too. I wonder, for example, how the parents of those young girls Solomon kidnapped for his harem felt about their king's holy mandate. Solomon monopolized God for the sake of his ambitions and appetites. He did this long after his personal devotion to God ran cold. 4. Wealth is not blessing. I feel like I need to repeat that. Wealth is not blessing. If it is, then Jesus, just to cite the obvious example, must be regarded as one of the most unblessed people ever to walk the earth. He lived and died dirt poor. But if there's one false teaching that haunts the American church most, this is it. That money is an unambiguous sign of God's approval. Hence, prosperity theology 
Hence, our willingness to turn a blind eye to sin in our politicians, our economic policymakers, our religious leaders, and our cultural icons when their sins come packaged in enormous wealth. Too often, money creates a moral vacuum. Solomon remained wealthy while he sacrificed babies to Moloch. Wealth is not blessing. Let's tell the story one more time. Once upon a time there lived a king. He had big dreams, as most of us do. He had great faults, as most of us do. He yearned at times for the best of things, wisdom, discernment, and a sound mind, and lusted at other times for the worst. He lived a life marked by success and failure, nobility and disgrace. He loved God, and he didn't. He pleased God, and he didn't. He left a legacy that was neither perfect nor wretched, as most of us will. But he was loved by God throughout, even when his foolish wisdom shattered God's heart. And so were we. For books this week, Dan reviews The Line Becomes a River by Francisco Cantu. I read Francisco Cantu's powerful memoir at the height of the national outrage about the U.S. treatment of migrants. According to Time magazine, <clears throat> currently more than 11,800 children from a few months old to 17 are housed in nearly 90 facilities in 15 states. They are being held while their parents await immigration proceedings or, if the children arrived unaccompanied, are reviewed for possible asylum themselves. In fact, this is a billion-dollar-a-year industry. Cantu is a third-generation Mexican-American, fluent in Spanish, who specialized in international relations, immigration, and border security as a college student and a Fulbright scholar. Much to the horror of his mother, who spent her career as a park service ranger, at the age of 23 he then became a border patrol agent for four years. He started as a field agent in the vast and hostile deserts of Arizona. In the year 2000, agents like Cantu arrested 1.5 million people on the border, those seeking economic opportunity, others trying to reconnect with family, repeat crossers, delirious and nearly dead quitters who had been left behind by their groups, human traffickers and drug runners of violent cartels who watched Cantu's movements as much as he watched theirs. He rescued mothers with children, recovered decomposed bodies that were crawling with ants, and processed people into the vast maw of the ICE bureaucracy. After a year as a field agent, Cantu moved to the sector intelligence headquarters on Tucson. In the comfort of an air-conditioned office, he did computer stuff, like analyzing human smuggling techniques and crossing patterns. He later moved to the tactical operations headquarters in El Paso. In the last third of the book, after he quit the border patrol and thought that he had experienced just about everything, Cantu found himself on the other side of the table in detention centers, courtrooms, and law offices, trying to help a friend who had been arrested and separated from his wife and three children by an agent just like himself. After four years as a border patrol agent, Cantu was plagued by nightmares. His dentist asked him why he was grinding his teeth. Most of all, despite his desire to complement his intellectual studies with a practical knowledge of border security, Cantu developed a stricken conscience. Much of his book is an acknowledgment of his own complicity in a deeply flawed system. Yes, he's the first to acknowledge that the Border Patrol does good and necessary work. But separating children from their parents, it turns out, is only one manifestation of a vast bureaucracy of institutional violence and deadly policies that dehumanize migrants, says Cantu, and in turn dehumanizes our society. His book hopes to change that. For movies this week, Dan reviews Chasing Train. This 90-minute documentary about the jazz saxophonist John Coltrane tells the inspirational story of one of the greatest musical geniuses of his generation. Coltrane's story begins in Hamlet, North Carolina, where both of his grandfathers were pastors. That historically racist context and deeply spiritual family combined to find expression in Coltrane's jazz 
which is nothing more, nothing less than a musical medium in search of what is eternally good, true, and beautiful. One of the special treats of this movie is how it explores Coltrane's pronounced spirituality. To take just one example from the cover of his famous album, A Love Supreme, Coltrane wrote, May we never forget that in the sunshine of our lives, through the storm and after the rain, it is all with God, in all ways and forever, all praise to God. Coltrane's story is told by the memories and reflections of many people, against the background soundtrack of his music, family, friends, bandmates, and music critics. My favorites were Carlos Santana, the Princeton's philosopher Cornel West, Wynton Marsalis, Bill Clinton, and John Densmore, the drummer for The Doors. Coltrane died all too soon at the age of 40 from liver cancer. And finally, for poetry this week, On Virtue by Phyllis Wheatley. O oh, thou bright jewel, in my aim I strive to comprehend thee. Thine own words declare wisdom is higher than a fool can reach. I cease to wonder, and no more attempt thine height to explore, or fathom thy profound. But, O oh, my soul, sink not into despair. Virtue is near thee, and with gentle hand would now embrace thee, hovers over thine head. Fain would the heaven-born soul with her converse, then seek, then court her for her promised bliss. Auspicious queen, thine heavenly pinion spread, and lead celestial chastity along. Lo, now her sacred retinue descends, arrayed in glory from the orbs above. Attend to me, virtue, through my youthful years, or leave me not to the false joys of time, but guide my steps to endless life and bliss. Greatness, or goodness, say what I shall call thee, to give me an higher appellation still. Teach me a better strain, a nobler lay, O thou, enthroned with cherubs in the realms of day. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for August 19th, 2018. I'm Debbie Thomas.